probably the biggest thing I've learned in the last three years from, from taking on the coaching of Scotland, Scotland's junior squad is that it's got to be fun. Even for the, for the juniors there who are running in jaywalk, they won't come to training weekends if it's not fun, even at that level. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Running. Uh, we are back after a little break. Um, I've been on holiday, been up to Scotland, not actually at the Scottish Six Days, but managed to get a little bit of orienteering in anyway. Will, sounds like you've just been watching the Olympics and you've been a bit injured and you've just, you know, what's your excuse? <laughs> yeah, I've been, quite, I've, been, I've been quite injured, more injured than I planned on being. Um, so I'm now out for the season, which is great. Uh, <laughs> Which is joyous, makes my summer really fun. Uh, but yeah, so I feel that my time watching copious amounts of Olympics and uh, living vicariously for other people, which is great. So we, we both uh, actually missed the Scottish six days um, in the last couple of weeks or Scottish two by three days, three by two days. So whatever it, whatever it was, that something like Two by three days, I think, Scotland. yeah. Yes, and um, it looked really, really great. Um, a lot of the courses there, very, very tough mixture of some nice open bits and foresty bits which looked very very brackney and Thick. tough really yeah. some long times going on there really really tough stuff and the next one 2023 is going to be back in murray which is like my favorite part of scotland so i am very excited for it to be yeah. there and i'm the dreaming of like where my leaves gonna go and i have to think about leave i've got you know whatever i have to think about where that's going to go so i can make it to the scottish six days yeah. in murray in 2023 because that terrain is just fantastic the, yeah. the rolling moravian style with very little on the ground oh, it doesn't get any better on oh, sand dunes and the oh, sand dunes. It's, it's yeah, yeah. forest and sand dunes it's just great so i'm so looking forward to that but we've also just had the um world cup second round of the world cup in have. sweden taking place um last weekend which was really really tough I was, so i was commentating on on it and you you got the maps and it's just like the map basically has if you exclude white three colors on it it's got blue brown and black on it and the rest is completely white and you go this is gonna look amazing and then you see the pictures of it and it's like it's quite high in the runnability it's runnability is good but the visibility there's all these like spruce trees or whatever with um, low branches and you just like can't see anything and there's mm. loads of detail everywhere and it just looked it, like honestly the runners were saying it was so technical but like really satisfying to orienteer through i think well if you well. got it right that is if you got it right, because quite a few people did not get it right. And uh, I mean, the long distance was first up on the Thursday. And for the women, it was quite a long time over planned winning times in general. They're normally 75 minutes. The winner did win of Simone Abbasol from Switzerland in 128. Um, so significantly over the, yeah, uh, the eight minutes time. over, which is quite a lot by the, that standard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just the times that you see going down, I mean, it was crazy. So they had this slot. So what they did is they started the very short control number one, then a long number two where there was a bit of root choice, although everybody pretty much went straight. This big old loop, then they finished you. It's all on a, it's all on the hillside, this thing. And they finished you down at the bottom. No, they didn't finish. Yeah, they finished you. And there was an arena passage down at the bottom by this lake. And you do this arena passage, change your map, and then they literally put you straight back up all the way up the slope again, like 200 meters of climb in one leg. I mean, the training I did this uh, this evening didn't have that much climb in the whole course, and it's quite a hilly area for the south. In one leg, 
then they throw you into this area that they call the Bermuda Triangle because that's how difficult it is and people get lost towards the end of the course having just climbed 200 meters it's this like both really complex and also really vague area there's just like lots mm. of little uh kind of uh, re-entrance and spurs and things and it's kind of rocky and the visibility is really low and you can't see anything and it's just I mean the the mistakes were were pretty good yeah. and then I and then they throw you back down the hill and that's pretty much it people should go to World of O because I've done a great analysis of it and recapping everyone's mistakes and oh. on the men's if you were over two hours you were 36 on the men's two hours 11 seconds yeah and like Robert Merle from Austria was 35th for the men just sneaking in nine seconds under two hours. And he's a previous junior world champion and medalist like across the board. So mm. it's just crazy, crazy technical. Numerous people over nearly three hours. Yeah. For a long distance course. Yeah. Like, no, and, and don't even I get don't started on the Colombian team who went there. The Colombian team took three men and three women. And I think most of them were over the max time. Yeah. They say. Is, I mean, it, again, it, you don't see that very often. It was really long. And then then I think everyone was really glad to have a rest day because, my God, everyone needed it. a rest after that. Uh, and then this middle distance on, again, it was like, a, it was a different map, but kind of similar-ish. And then they just threw Very you blank, up. apart from contours. Yeah, yeah. And they just threw you up this hill, this massive hill, up, 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 did a little loop and up. And, and that was, again, really like technical Bermuda Triangle-y kind of bits. And then off the top of this hill... And we thought, okay, oh, they'll all make all the mistakes going up the hill and these really te- technical short controls. And then they had a few kind of longer ones at the top of the hill and then a few longer ones kind of coming down the hill. And it was there where we saw the biggest mess ups because actually there's there's not much detail on the map. There was pretty much this this leg they did going down, traversing across this slope, going down a little bit. And it was in like maybe this tiny form line re-entrant in this slope that was otherwise didn't really have any features in it. It was just a, just yeah. a like boring flats, like, you know, everything looks the same slope. And maybe a lot of people were heading down to try and pick up this re-entrant to then go and run up it. And people were just running straight past it. It was it was it was that part where it was really vague that people were just missing so much and these are these are the best orienteers in the world i mean i would not even want to think about how long it would take me to get around that course well i think it was taking them a long time as well um, yeah. i mean again long winning times 40 minutes for the men 39 20 for the women is yeah for a 5k course for the women 6k for the men it's a mm. long time and no one was clean that was the beauty of it because no one was clean throughout the whole weekend so you saw everyone making mistakes so it really wasn't who could get just get round the cleaners it wasn't an argument of who would have the most tracking up and so forth which we see a lot in world cups because it's such big start list you know 123 for the men on the middle distance course yeah. so many that it's so tracked up by the end but and and there's a real story of a couple of young runners or less experienced orienteers doing really well in this terrain in the on the first day of the long day there was um a 19 year old from sweden called hannah lundberg who came fourth uh, out of pretty much nowhere it's her first senior race she did one junior world champs before she hadn't she'd done fine you know not particularly amazing in denmark a couple of years ago and then she makes a debut for sweden on the national team and she comes fourth and the the next day was the next race the middle distance 
she's ranked coming into this like in the 800s or something. She's only got ranking points from that one junior world champs. So she is, and the, the start list are done in reverse world ranking order, basically. It's a bit more complicated than that. And so she is starting first. She is starting this course. She's the first one out of the start. She's got number one in her bib and she goes around the course and she finishes and she's in the lead. Great, great. That's and then they make them sit on this leader's chair so that they can um, see, you know, the, and then eventually, you know, they'll get displaced by somebody else, you know, who comes in faster. Yeah, the classic hot seat situation. Yeah, yeah, classic hot seat. So she's sat there and she's watching everyone coming in and oh, this person makes a mistake and finishes slower than her. And this really great person makes a mistake and finishes slower than her. And you've got the last few, including Tove Alexanderson, who won everything at the World Champs, Simona Abbasolt, who won the long distance race. And... And then suddenly we're like, oh, I wonder what's happened to these people. And then we see the GPS tracking and they've made a mistake. And what the TV director, I think the TV director must have done this on purpose because he's withheld this information. What he's done is he's told one of the camera ops to go and film this Hannah Lindbergh's reaction to seeing these two top women making the mistakes. And it is a picture. Please go and look at it if you haven't seen it because it's on SVT sport instagram it's on swedish orienteering's instagram like go and have a look at it because she's just kind of sitting there head on her hand just kind of chilling out and then suddenly her eyes widen and she looks up and she realizes she's won this race per forsberg in the arena calls it and it's just this kind of fairy tale moment of her starting first winning this race beating some like top you know Tove Alexanderson may well become have to have eventually at the end of her career will have the most wins of any orienteer ever she's that dominant and she's that good and the winner from the long distance race and she's beaten both of them on her essentially on her debut and it was just I think the biggest upset I've ever seen in in orienteering it was amazing yeah there you go (laughs) enough said (laughs) <laughs> enough said and and they basically they just managed to do pretty clean races you know yeah. nothing spectacular in terms of speed although evidently you know she was pretty quick through the terrain because you oh you mean you have to be yeah, yeah. you still have to be um, to, to be able to win that and the same with um simon hector who was third in the men's course i mean he was just like yeah i think i lost maybe like maximum five seconds to any control and i'm like there's gonna be very few people out there who say that today and that's few. why he ended up with a bronze medal and it, oh my god it was um yeah it's a good day for the swedish youngsters yeah yeah and this is about you know these the, the world champs you're only maybe allowed to take like three people per um yeah. unless you've got defending champion unless you've got a defending champion and, and the long distance for a lot of the nations it's even less than that but the, these ones you know you're, you're allowed kind of six up to eight even nine runners um per nation to enter these these races so you mm. get a lot of juniors or not juniors well she was a junior but kind of younger members of the team less experienced members of the team that that get in when you have that that bigger pool and maybe they don't get chosen for a world championships when the selectors want to go for somebody more experienced, maybe a safer pair of hands. And this has just shown that actually there's a lot of people who maybe who, who wouldn't make a world champs team being really surprising, I think because of the, the year and a half we've, we've had and that yes. they've come on and they've, they've 
you know, it feels like they're coming out of nowhere. But if we had had all those races coming leading up to the, this point, then it wouldn't. It wouldn't feel so alien, like would that. it? Yeah, it wouldn't yeah, feel quite more as of a much backstory. Of a exactly. So, you know, I love the fact that actually there's been a whole load of young runners almost feel like proving the selectors wrong in um from all sorts of different nations at that world cup and that was really great to see and then a lot of them were rewarded with um you know places in the first teams on the relay where there were sweden won both sweden won both exactly well sweden Sweden Sweden. two beat sweden one in the women's relay and they were one and two like there's multiple teams per nation which means you're running against like four swedish teams and they're all going to beat you or something like it's just they have so much depth and that that relay was also pretty carnage as well people making mistakes left right and center yeah. i think it's incredibly um, exciting though yeah because it was i think like five men going for the gold at the end so yeah it was there's... one of the tightest it was one of the tightest yeah. races i've um relays especially on the men's side that i've seen for a long time there were five teams in it right to the very end it came down to a Amazing. sprint finish and Oh, it was really, really great. And I mean, on the British side of things, we had a couple of people making their World Cup debuts. Um, Laura King, Fiona Bunn. Was Ben Mitchell making his World Cup debut? Josh Dudley was. Um, apologies if I've missed Ben, anybody. maybe not. No. No, I feel like Ben's already been, think... but maybe he was. Um, who else have I missed then? Not sure. There's a few people, you know, quite a few people kind of making their debuts and uh for having that first experience at running for the team so i mean congrats to everyone who went and i think it was some real tough days in the forest especially for you know after covid it's not a terrain that people will have prepared for as well that you know people everyone's yeah. been focusing on the world champs and everything like that but it can't um, get any harder no no and actually you know some really I don't know it's hard it's hard to know how people will having not talked to them how people will yes. feel about their performances um so I don't want to say put too many words into the people's mouths but it it seemed like a really tough one out there and you know holding your own against some of you know against the best in the world of which the GB team is a part so yeah roll on the next races next one on is the next Italy races. In, next races in October no yeah. in September End of September, beginning of October, where there is a long, a middle and a relay. We've also got um, Yukula coming up this weekend for Mm -hmm. just a select top number of teams. Um, So I know certainly some of the athletes went straight up to the very, very northern part of Rovaniemi, which is within the Arctic Circle, I think, um, to compete there for their Yukula team, for their for their teams for Yukula. So best of luck to all of those. That looks I've seen some pictures of Megan Carter Davis running around some of the areas and it looks really, really great. But let's move on to our um, main interview of today because we thought we should, uh, after seeing him being one of our controllers, and I know he's been a big name around um, Scottish orienteering, we should thought we should have a little chat to John Musgrave. So, John, welcome um, to the Run In podcast. Um, would you like to start? You're, you're a man who does many things in orienteering. So why don't you start by kind of introducing yourself to our listeners? Um, okay, I'm Jonathan Musgrave. Um, I've been orienteering now 40, 44 years, I think. I've been an orienteering map maker for longer than I care to remember. Um, about 35 years <laughs> or more. 
detailer and doing maps. I've also been a, a British British squad member from 1981 till 2000, uh, or 2001, in fact, and I've been a, a coach um, at various levels up to and including uh, um, co- helping the co- coaching team at the World Champs. And is there a part of that that you enjoy the most? Leaving aside my own co- my own competitive career, probably the thing I, I have enjoyed the most is actually coaching at big races. Um, I love the, the the pressure of trying to help the to help the team to get the best out of themselves, um, and where you're not looking to the future, you're looking now. You want the results today. You want the result. You want to get the right frame of mind for tomorrow, and so on. I really, I really enjoyed that, and um, luckily, I've been in, been with, with teams at quite a lot of races where the results have been um, have been outstanding, and so the, you know the, the the feeling of of uh, the the team doing well, individuals doing well, is always is always fantastic. Yeah, it's always so rewarding. And what kind of an impact do you think you could you as a coach make? kind of yeah in those last couple of hours before a race or in the middle of a competition I guess you'd mostly say most you know most of the work to get to that stage has been has been completed but those last few moments are they crucial? They can be depending on the individuals um I what I'll try to be doing is making sure that people are relaxed going into into the start boxes say or or into quarantine if that's the last time I see them not trying to throw loads of ideas at them, loads of advice at them. Um, but as you say, they've done, the work has been done. They're at what stage they are, what, what level they are. And all you can do is try to help them to achieve the level that they are at. Um, and so if that's someone, if, if that's someone who's you know, very high performance and, and really well prepared, that might be going for a medal. Um, for most of them, it won't be. Most of them, it'll be going for a, a top 20, a top 30, a, a run without a big mistake. Um, and, and so it's trying to get them in the right state of mind, spotting the ones who are nervous and trying to calm them down, spotting the ones who you know you can maybe just G up a wee bit um, to, to, uh, to, to get the best out of them. But uh, really, it's, it's almost an exercise in doing less than, than doing more. And only intervening when you feel when you feel it's really necessary. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you, you especially mentioned some people need calming down and some people need geeing up. I think that's a lot of things that I've heard actually from over the Olympics. A lot of athletes and maybe chatting about like what music they listen to before a race. And some of them really need need that to be able to build the adrenaline and build the hype. And actually, some just need to calm down is it do you kind of get a feel for what each athlete responds best to and then having to deal with that yeah yes i mean some athletes have said this is my routine i want you to do this at this point and that at that point and that's great because suddenly i'm just doing what they want which will hopefully help them feel in control and, and, and so uh, the lead coach with the scottish junior squad and it's harder there because they're younger they're they're developing very quickly um and also, I don't know all of them that well. And so it's, uh, it's a trickier thing. So I'm kind of observing them and trying to see how, uh, understand how they're feeling and responding to that. 
how long does that take normally do you think to to learn those rhythms of the of the athletes is it is it just instinctive for some people and not for others it varies it varies a lot some athletes are very open about how they're feeling um and so you, you can learn quite quickly what they need what they want to help them others are a lot more closed and a lot sort of tighter in themselves and so you're you're almost kind of just sort of prodding on the edges, hoping not to make things worse and, 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 and you know, hoping that you might actually help things. Um, but you, you learn to sort of read their body language and, and, and the body tension and so on um, in, in them. Um, and with meeting them at training weekends and training camps, you, you, you get to know the personality. And uh, quite often it's not the personality that they will necessarily show you as a coach, particularly for the younger, but it's the personality they've got with other other kids of their age. So you're kind of observing them from a distance and uh, and seeing. All oh, right, so he's not that quiet when he's with his mates. You know, it might be quiet to me, but and so you you, you gradually learn um, what's the personality they've got and what what they'll respond to. We had Claire Ward on the show um, quite a few months ago, and she was talking about when she she got a coach and. She'd had lots of people coach her who who were wanting to ask her what her own methods and things were. And actually, she realized she wanted a coach who could say, this is how to orienteer. You do this and you do this and you do this. So in terms of your coaching approach, where on that kind of scale, I guess, do you think you sit? I'll say it depends. <laughs> I'll sit on the fence. It depends on the age and the stage of the athletes. With youngsters, you say, this is how you read the map. This is how you take the bearing. This is how you make your, your route choice decisions. Once they've developed, and you know, generally by the time they're at senior level, you're saying, well, you know your strengths. Say, for example, route choice. You know that if you're faster running around the tracks rather than going straight over the hill. Um, and so I'll be trying to reinforce that rather than, uh, than imposing my own views on it. Um, I, I suppose I am fairly hands-off in coaching in general, but um, I believe that if you give them the, the, the information and the advice, they, they can generally learn from that. And hopefully they will have the confidence to come back and say, I didn't understand that, or I want a bit more information about this, or can you tell me how to do that? And then, and then it's always easier to respond than to try to just throw information into a black void. Yeah, I find a lot as a, like seeing other coaches and being a coach, you're kind of a, a sounding board or you're a prompt for the athlete themselves to kind of figure it out. They may have got it half in their head already, but it's getting them to vocalise either what their experiences are on a terrain or what they need to do, but they've probably already have some of an idea themselves yes yeah again have to have the confidence in what they're doing um you know, the, you know again going back to the root choice once you've made your root choice you stick with it you don't get halfway along it and suddenly lose confidence and cross over and join go into the other route that's a recipe for for disaster um and so it's, it's trying to give them the confidence to believe in themselves um and uh, the other the other thing i I will say to everyone I'm coaching from 
total novice to world champs athlete is if you don't know where you are and where you're going, stop until you do um, and work out how you're going to get there. Because if, if you don't know where you are and you don't know how you're going to, where you're going, if you're just running through the terrain, you're running completely blind. Um, and so it's almost have the confidence to stop and look at the map, work out where you are and carry on. Yeah. And which not many people do, judging by the World Cup races last, last weekend. <laughs> no, no. But equally, you sometimes see in, in like a world a video from World Champs, athletes will come through a really tricky section and they'll come to a big, long route choice leg. And some of the best athletes in the world, they will stop and stand there for five, six seconds, which is a long time. You can get a lot out of a map in that time. Stand there for five or six seconds, maybe even more work out their route and then go. Because in terms of running in terrain, five seconds is going the wrong side of a boulder, the wrong side of a thicket. And yet people get panicky about, I've got to keep moving, I've got to keep moving. And often the best thing they can do is stop, work out where they're going and then run positively. Um, but yeah, it's difficult. The adrenaline's there, you're rushing, you're thinking I'm losing time. But um, having that confidence, uh, to say, no, I don't know what I'm doing, I will wait, um, will we'll, we'll, we'll help you in the long run. Yeah, I think we, Will was referring, I think some of the, the World uh, Cup runners, there were definitely, there were three women all together who were in this really, really tricky part. And they were doing that thing that I was saying in commentary, it's very relatable to a lot of orienteers because you know you're really close to the control but you don't quite know where it is and you've got a couple of people around you and you're looking at them and you're going, they're going to find it. They're going to find it. And the other two are doing exactly the same. They're yes. going, this one's going to find it. And none of them had actually done exactly what you said, which is stop, read the map, figure out where you are. And they were just going around in circles, the three of them together. I mean, I have definitely done that before. And if, if, if I'm pretty sure most orienteers have to, it just felt like a yeah, very relatable yeah. moment. Yes. Yeah. We've, we've all done it. And uh, yeah. after the race, you think I was so close. If only I'd looked that way or if only I'd looked at the map and seen that boulder or that, that thicket or re-entrant. Um, but he's trying to control it in the situation. And that's why, why as I was talking about being at the start coaching, getting them to go out into forest in a relaxed state of mind is probably the most important thing you can do. Without that, you know, they're, they're guaranteed to lose five minutes at the first control <laughs> and then it's race over. Mm. That is easier said than done though. And, and you talk about confidence as well and, and making sure you build people's confidence up. Like, I think it's such a huge thing and we've heard from so many athletes, they've said, I felt really confident going to this race because whatever. And I think a, a coach's role is really important part of that. So how, how do you, how do you try and build confidence in people and get them to believe that they're good? I'd say the first thing is try to get them as much orienteering, as much orienteering time in the forest, reading maps, running in the terrain as possible. For a long time, I've believed that the reason that the, uh, the Scandinavians and the Swiss are so good, let's say at jaywalk level, is because the Scandinavians anyway, by the time they reach 16, they're probably in the forest four times a week training. Not always with controls, but with a map 
running a course, sometimes controls, sometimes tapes, um, sometimes time, sometimes not. But how many British volunteers at that age are out in the forest four times a week? I'd say probably, probably none, maybe one or two. Um, and I think it's finding those thousands, running those thousands of legs, running those thousands of controls gives you that underlying confidence that you can just correct your mistakes, you can pick things up and you learn so much from spending that amount of time in terrain about just picking up the subtleties of the mapping, the subtleties of, of the terrain, um, as well as the confidence of running in, in terrain, which, which, is, uh, you know, which, which is also very useful. So that, that, to me, that's the, that's the most basic starting point. Um, I suppose the next thing is to make sure that some of the training, some of the training, particularly at training weekends, is high quality training. So you've got controls out there, you've got well-planned courses, you've got coaches possibly shadowing or certainly giving advice in between um, different sessions. Um, and so trying to tease out from the athletes any problems they've had, bits that work well, and building that up so that hopefully they're building up their, their, their skills uh, at, at each weekend. Yeah, I, I think there's very few even, you know, senior, you know, World Cup and World Champs members of the British squad that will train four times a week in terrain with a, with a map, I think. Um, yeah. And it's such a shame that, I mean, maybe maybe it's slightly easier in Scotland or depends. I mean, it depends maybe where in the country you live. It and, depends and, where you're living. If you live in somewhere like the Murray Coast or Deeside or Strathspey, you probably could train three or four times a week on the map with terrain, you know, with, you know, with, with courses. Mm. Um, most other places in Britain, you'd struggle or you'd very quickly get so used to the forests that you're not actually gaining a lot from them. Possibly that's why some of our best athletes have, uh, <laughs> have lived abroad <laughs> for at least significant chunks of time. In the 90s, I, I, I was running for Ukutir in Karlstad, and I was going across there for three or four weeks every spring, in to maybe a couple of weeks before Tiamila, and then a couple of weeks afterwards doing some races. And that was probably when I, well, it's when I learned to master Scandinavian terrain, um, running with, with, with uh, Steve Hale and Colin McIntyre in particular out there regularly. And uh, it made a huge difference to my to my ability in in, in in technical terrain. And so possibly you don't need to live there all the time, but you certainly need these extended periods when you're just training, not necessarily very intensively, but very extensively, just a lot of time in the forests with lots of circles on the maps. As I say, whether the controls there or not doesn't really matter because once you reach a certain level, you'll be able to know that oh, I missed that, that was the wrong builder, but I'll carry on anyway. And you're still learning from it. Um, but uh, <laughs> hopefully that'll get easier in the next year or two when, once things settle down. Um, but, uh, you know, a positive thing is the number of youngsters in, I say youngsters, you know, young seniors in Britain who are running for Scandinavian clubs uh, and going across and joining in their training camps. They're going to learn an awful lot from that. And uh, I'd certainly recommend any any youngster to go spend a summer over in Scandinavia um, just training with a club and uh, just learning from from everyone in those clubs 
yeah I think it's really really quality training and certainly when it then comes to competing abroad I think it's having that all that training behind you makes it become second nature I've been trying to think about the best way of like describing this but when I've been to um, like Norway just things looked different to how I expected them to look because I just I, I had never been there before I'd never competed there before when I was pre-running the world champs races and or world cup races and just having if I'd had that training or that time in the forest I would you know I would expect or, or have a better idea in my head about how it was going to look and so it wouldn't kind of be a surprise to me. And then I'd have that extra, you know, couple of extra mental seconds of trying to fit the two images yeah. together. And I think that just is in the way that that adds up throughout the course, that is so much mental energy saved. And I would hope I would be quicker on a course. Yes. Yeah. I, I think you're right. If you understand the mapping style, you understand the terrain type, you, you, you've got an idea of the sort of challenges the planner will give you, you're much more relaxed, much more confident, and uh, it just feels like, well, I've done this before. I was running in the areas nearby last month, a, month, a year ago, whatever. Um, I, thinking about that, it's interesting that um, before the world champs in Sweden in 2016, 16. 16, yeah. Um, Thierry Georgiou, who was based in Sweden, was across in Holden several times that winter, training, turning up at the local races, training on his own and so on. Um, so he was already a world standard orienteer. He was living in Sweden, but he felt that the terrain across in, in, in the different part of Sweden, near, near Holden, was, was going to be that much different. It was worth his while going there and, and uh, learning just the subtleties. And so, yeah, in, in a way, preparing for world champs, nothing beats going to the terrain, running in the neighboring forests, and just getting comfortable with what you're gonna experience. Yeah, I, I think, and, and you having, so, you know, you mentioned your international career in there. How much do you think having that in your past has has helped you coach now and coach well a some of the, the younger athletes but also those now competing internationally as well I, th I think I know I will know the feelings that they've got on the start line and the worries they've got so hopefully I can put some of them to put some of them to rest for the younger athletes it, it's a bit harder and I've got to go much further back in my own memory to the stage they're at now. But um, having been coaching in Scott Joss for uh, three years now, I feel I'm getting to know the things that they're, they're aware of and they're capable of and, they're, and, the, and their level of understanding. And so you know, I feel I've, I've been learning in these last three years as much as, 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 the, as the juniors have. Yeah, going back to remembering what it's like when you're bashing around some orange courses or some light greens or you're starting to up that challenge and the distance and everything yeah. as well. Well, it's like describing how to use a compass to someone who's a complete novice. I really have to wind my mind back and think about the basic steps. And I usually get something wrong at some point. But 
you know, in a way, for me, that is totally instinctive now. I don't need to think about it. Um, and actually, that, that's one of, the, one of the aspects that I think is the value of doing lots of technical training. Things become instinctive. You don't look at the map and think, well, I need to take a bearing here. Right, I need to take a bearing and you carefully move the compass. You just look at it and you think bearing and your body does it and the compass does it and you're off. Um, and in, in the same way that, let's say, a 400-meter hurdler doesn't have to think about every hurdle, about which leg am I taking off and how am I doing this and what am I doing. It's instinctive. They've done it so often, it's just instinctive. Um, and so that's, that's one of the big values of lots of technical training, getting things automatic. And so when you've got the extra pressure of a big race piled on you, you're actually you're not having to th actively think about what you're doing. It's kind of almost happening instinctively. Well, while your, your active mind is trying to control the panic of <laughs> and the adrenaline of a, of a world champ start or something. Yeah, it means that when everything goes wrong, everything's going wrong around you, you've still got those skills and those responses because they're just baked into you. And yeah, you don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I think if, if you do enough good quality training, then when you are tired, when you are stressed, your body will automatically go to what it has done most often. And if that's been good quality technical training, you will do good quality technical orienteering. If you've got used to just slopping around a course and not really paying much attention to it, that's what becomes your default when everything overwhelms you, tiredness or stress or, 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 the, or the, red, the red mist of adrenaline um, in a relay or something. And so it's that base, those basic levels of, of lots of good quality training um, is so critical. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and yeah, maybe that's one of the things that a lot of the, the Scottish athletes are able to get. And we've seen them uh, performing really well across international competitions. Maybe if you think about the population of Scotland above and beyond the, you know, what may be expected of them, what what do you think is down, you know, is behind the success of Scottish athletes on the kind of national and international scene? I, I, I'll put a proviso in. I think we've, we've had a really golden scene recently in Scottish orienteering. Um, but, but, but that said, I think the fact that there is technical terrain, good technical terrain within reach of most Scots, most Scottish clubs, um, is important. So as soon as they reach, as soon as they're at sort of light green level, they are running in technical areas and, uh, and learning good skills. Um, there's, there's a lot of maps, so they get a lot of variety of areas. It's not just the same local half dozen areas that the club uses you know, time and again. Um, there are also some clubs in Scotland that have got very active junior or, or club coaching programs. Um, and I think it is, it is becoming very apparent that they're the clubs that A, get lots of members and B, get lots of juniors into things like Scott Joss because they're actually teaching them the basics well enough, early enough that, 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 that suddenly they're already ahead of the game. It doesn't necessarily mean that all these athletes will go on to world champs, but 
if you widen the base, you've obviously got a greater chance of getting getting slightly higher at the top. Yeah, I think we've seen that a lot. And um, just, yeah, it's identifying, not necessarily identifying talent, it's identifying talent at, at some point, but starting base and, and getting as much people into a good enough position, equipping them with the skills and, and being able to allow them to enjoy orienteering. And I actually just thought of something that... Um, I've been chatting to Sarah Rollins about recently about because she's got her son Tommy as a top year 14 mm. and I was wondering what you think about this because she he's when he was a M12 he was running up to do M14 classes and has now been as an M14 running up and doing some M16 classes and she was saying in her opinion they we don't push the juniors enough to do technical things early enough and too many get kind of I don't some part, some part of it is kind of a bit bored with doing slightly easier courses, or, yes. or or not throwing them in the deep end enough, and and actually they they can do it. So, although I'm sure a lot of people would have the opposite view, and actually we need to stabilise and get them doing really good runs on oranges and stabilise that, and not scare them off with like pushing them too much in the deep end. So, I wonder what you thought about that. I think in the major races they should be running their age group because they are, they, are, they are running in a competitive age group and in a way that they're learning to handle the pressure. And you know, for, the, for the top half dozen or 10, they should all be thinking, if I run well here, I can win it. And that's a sort of different pressure to running up an age group and thinking, well, I'll do okay and I'll finish half a day on the field. Um, and so for the big, for big major races, I think you should run your age group. Um, smaller races, I totally agree. I think, you know, by the time they're 14, they should be running TD5 courses at local events, notwithstanding the fact that most British areas, even Scottish areas, aren't, aren't really capable of TD5, but they should be running technically harder stuff. And certainly at training sessions uh, in, in my club, we will, we will push people up to a training group higher than they're running. So if, if, they're, if they're running TD4 courses like green courses, we will expect them to be running training at TD5 in a way so that you're training, you, you're learning the skills of training, and then your races are that much easier. But then when you do move up to TD5, running TD5 in your races, you've already had a year or two of doing those in training. So it's not such a such a big um, step up. Um, so there's a big to me, there's a big difference between training and racing. And racing. You run, you run against your, 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 your compatriots and you try to beat them. Training, you should be looking to push yourself technically and, and, uh, and stretching yourself. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what, um, what uh, Tommy Rollins is doing is, yeah, he ran, running his age group for national or regional champs, things like that. And then you're using other events because it's not, not a whole load of training down here in the south where I'm from that actually you've got to use smaller events as training and therefore like run up or run longer or or whatever in in those kind of situations well if if you if you can get the right mindset of using the local races as training then that's that's great because the controls out there they should be in the right place you've got timing and so you've got all the elements there for really good technical analysis um what you try to avoid is just the 
oh, I was legging it as fast as I possible could run as, as I as, as I could run the track to get as fast as the time. Maybe you say, no, actually this time you're going to go straight on every leg to check your compass work and your map reading. Um, you accept your result may not be as good, but if you can, if you can do that, then yeah, even even you know the dare I say the poorest quality local event can provide good technical training. Yeah, you just got to use, I think, a bit of imagination. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, Will, do you have any more questions on the coaching side of things? No, I'm just, I'm just soaking it in. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Will, about um, pushing juniors to go uh, tougher, more technical? I think it's a good idea. It's, it's probably, yeah, where a lot of juniors get held back and then they get to training camps like Lag and Lear or Badaguish and they suddenly go, oh, bloody hell, this is a... <laughs> This is a lot more extreme than I'm used to, you know, console only maps, all this kind of thing. So I think it's a good plan, especially when you're confronted with areas which are a lot more technical than you're used to when you're growing up in a relatively, not pigeonholed environment, but your scope of areas is quite narrow. So you only run on yeah. Lake District areas maybe once a year or twice a year at a big race or in Scotland at the Scottish Six Days. And then you go to a training camp when you're a junior and it can be quite intimidating if you're spending a week on very technical terrain. So I think the more used to being technically challenged you are, because, because that's the step up it is at internationals as well. It just ramps another level because they try and find the most technical terrain they can wherever it is. You look at world champs and the World Cups last weekend. If every if the best world's best orienteers are making however many mistakes that they made in the middle distance uh, in the Swedish World Cup round, you know, you've got yeah. to be prepared for that at whatever level. But I think it's, yeah, it can only be a good thing, right? Yeah. I mean, I think you can also, I think you could say that that would scare away a few juniors um, it, it you know, might do. really, really struggling yeah. around a course that they're not ready for. But so hopefully you're going to use it with, ideally, you've got the structures in place that they've, that they're building those skills and they're training regularly enough and they're like working with a good coach, but uh, doesn't always happen like that. Oh, it's traumatic. I remember when I had to do an off string course for the first time, I, I came back bawling my eyes out. So. <laughs> 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 and look and look at where you are now look at where i am now <laughs> yeah, yeah. oh that's really good well i, I mean john you, you got you're involved in so many things but one thing i'm kind of and why your name has come up in the last uh couple of weeks is because i think you were controlling one of the days of the scottish six days is that right yes i was yes so was lucky, lucky yeah, enough to get rs egg over near my leg nice yeah. So tell me a little bit, paint a picture um, of the map and of the terrain for those people who didn't go. And then tell me a little bit about how how the jo job as controller works and what it's all about. Yeah. The Arasega, I think, is probably one of the best open areas in the whole of Britain. It's got a big, it's a big, big hillside, but also with some big lumps and hills and fairly steep sided stream valleys, almost gorges. So there's big shapes there. And then there's middle-sized shapes with lots of contour features. But also there's a lot of fairly, well, I say fairly small rock detail. I'm talking sort of four, five, eight-meter crags. Um, but actually quite a lot of intensive detail at a small scale. And so just roughly following a compass and hoping to go into a detail there and find your control, it's not going to work. Because you can't see, you can't stand there and see, oh, these are the four moles. 
the first knoll hides everything. So you have to go around it, and then there's a second knoll, and then go around that, and there's a third knoll. So the scale of things is, there's just enough detail there to make it really tricky. Um, but the, the running is generally okay. It's not, it's not lightning fast, but it's not, it's not knee deep heather the whole way. And, and so you're actually moving fairly quickly as well, for the wealth elite anyway. Um, and uh, so it, it, it's, a, it's a really good open area. Um, now, I say I lucked out getting the area because it's fantastic. I love it. Um, I also lucked out my planners in that I had Eddie Harvey and um, uh, David Summers, from, uh, Eddie Harvey from Moravian and David Summers from Invoc. And they're both very experienced planners. And so I wasn't having to sort of worry about whether they get the basics of the planning right. Um, and, uh, and, and so it was more sort of philosophical comments I was throwing in. The, the, one, the one I threw in a couple of times was, every course can be improved by taking a control out of it. Um, and you know, at times they were getting defensive, saying, well, I don't think I can take any more control, courses out, controls out of this course. And it's like, no, no, I wasn't meaning that course. I'm I meaning as a general philosophy that with an area like that, with very few line features, you don't need lots and lots of controls. And so, but they, they, came, they, they came right at the start with the sort of, some of the courses that are sort of two, one and a half, two kilometer first leg. And uh, I think most people really appreciated it. One or two complained saying, oh, there was, this, there was this big stream and there was that ruined fence. But that wasn't the point of it because you had to decide where you're going to cross the, the, these big line features. And if, if that's 750 meters long, a one and a half kilometer leg, it's not really going to help you, you know, whether, whether, you, whether you know exactly where you are there. You still got another 750 meters, but you had to make a big strategic decision. Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I go high? Do I, do I contour or whatever? Um, and then you had to read the detail uh, in it and then make sure you hit the control at the far end. Um, and so, so the, 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 the controlling there was actually fairly simple. Um, they produced very good courses, very few tweaks, a few, you know, lots of comments, but but um, not not much else. Um, I, yeah. I, I have to up though that I failed to notice that the first control on the men's the men's elite course was on a crag too far down the hill. Um, ah. And does that does that? Does that <laughs> Did you run that one, Will? No, no, I actually couldn't go in the end. Um, okay. so, so I was watching. I was watching the stuff come up on Rico Jet. And the only the only thing I can say in my defence was I hadn't checked that on the day before, but I was waking it on the morning of the race. So I got there at half past seven for second control. I was going to, and I came round from the contour, the control above it. And thought I'll contour round and it'll be just there. And I contoured round and it was just not there, but, oh, there's a control down there. And I punched it and I left it and I climbed a bit and I thought, oh, where am I? Oh, I'm here. And I wasn't in a, hold on, let's check exactly where this control is. I was in a, I found a control, I've woken it up, I'm going to the next control. And so for me, that was a real learning point. Um, even when you're waking controls, you've got to be questioning, is it in the right place, is it not? And mm -hmm. the planner admitted that he'd put the control there but um, he hadn't found the tape. But this was an area that had lots of sheep and cattle in it, and lots of tapes had gone missing, or been eaten, or burnt. 
<laughs> the guy, the farmer burns the area in the spring. Um, and so he assumed he just hadn't seen it. Um, so, and I, it had also been checked. It had been placed and checked the day before. And then I, I woke up in the morning. So three of us had, had got it got it wrong. And it's a bit like, I'm not really sure what, what much, what else we could have done. Um, but only two athletes mentioned it. And they're both very understanding about it. Which I'm very, very well, that's good. But yeah, what can I you think... what can you do in that situation other than move it? And then, if you move it to the wrong place, it, then it's on you. It, it wasn't. It wasn't a really early starter who first mentioned it. So about halfway through the race, before I heard about it. Okay. And I thought, well, I'd rather not move it now because then the whole race becomes two races. Mm. Um. So I don't know how many people lost time on it, and I can only apologise to those who did. Yeah. And so how how long a process is controlling a day for the Scottish Six Days? And how much time do you spend in the terrain? Because there's 40 courses, right, I think? So for, uh, over 40 courses? Uh, no, it, it was 20, 20, 21. 21. It's been reduced. Okay. It used to be nearer 30, but they reduced it this year oh, right. because yeah. partly because of numbers. In some ways, it becomes a job of sort of organization rather than planning. You plan your longest course, you plan your short, you, know, you plan the, the, the lower TD courses, and then you've maybe got eight or 10 courses between three and a half kilometers and six and a half kilometers. And so it becomes a, well, I've used that control for four courses, so I can't use that again. So they'll have to this one, which means that leg, that leg isn't quite so good. But we've used the best leg for those courses. We can't use it for this one. And so it becomes a sort of management problem. Um, so it's not probably, it's a bit different from just planning, say, three or four elite courses where you can, you can try to make every single leg the best possible. In our saying, there weren't many bad legs, put it that way. <laughs> uh, you know, the whole terrain was, was so interesting and challenging um, that uh, there wasn't a real major problem there. Yeah, the courses look great, and I was chatting. I didn't go; I wasn't able to make it either. But I was chatting through with um, someone I coach who ran off the map um, on the the W sixteen course, got all the way to the the east side of it, and then just yes. completely overshot. Uh, I think the second control ended up off the map, and then finding her way back to the third control, and it just looks that's quite really, impressive. Yeah, really tough. <laughs> good relocation <laughs> lots of learning <laughs> yes that's what I thought and learning it was quite generated. funny because she was she was online and um had had seen all the you know she was ticking things off and ticking things off and then it was just and crossed the one of the larger streams and then yeah. just completely went off direction um was absolutely bang on the line all the way up to there and then stopped around roughly the the distance she would have gone to get to the control and was wandering around there for a bit and I was like there's some good skills in there but it's not quite all together yet yes yeah yeah um, that's definitely um part of it um yeah, so how long, when, when did you, when did you kind of get on board with uh, doing that controlling for well, Arasaic? Everything, everything at this year's six day was, was massively compressed. Mm. Not over the six day, you'll be visiting the area, the August or September beforehand, to see the area with the vegetation of, of, of the, the summer and so on. Um, 
normally the, the controller will have drafts courses by probably November time and you go up in the winter and check things out and so on. This year was a bit different. My first visit was, I think it was April. I know I went across for two days. Um, the first day I almost got hypothermia. It was dry, strong wind and driving rain. And uh, I'd stopped right. for about two hours and eventually thought, I can't do that group over there. And I just turned and ran back with the wind behind me and then spent about three or four hours trying to get warm. And the next day I was out there, it was, it was cold air again, but I was lying down in the sunshine watching the view out to the islands to the west. So it was a complete change. But um, so that was the first time I'd seen. And most of the controls had been tagged by then. Um, and then I, th I was back in May for another visit and checked all the other controls that I hadn't seen. Um, and that was about it. Um, I think normally I'd have probably had a third visit. Normally I'd have gone maybe in November or December and then March and then maybe May or June time. Um, but the, the planners also had a similar problem of, of, of having to compress everything and kind of, there was a lot less fiddling with the courses once once they'd initially planned them, um, which in some ways it with that area it didn't matter because it, there's so few line features in it that you can fiddle you can tweak your courses endlessly without really improving them. So in a way, just getting them right at the start and then not worrying too much about tweaks was probably the best thing. Yeah. One, one positive thing was having a remote finish up at the top of the hill, which did mean it was a 700 metre plug down the hill for everyone there. But it meant that the shorter courses could have technical terrain pretty much to the end. Mm, it's only a good thing. Yeah, I think, the better. I think there's been lots of Scottish six days courses where you, the last like three controls are a bit rubbish because they're just taking you back to the arena and everything like that and just yeah definitely rather have more in terrain when the terrain's that good and do you think your controlling and your coaching makes you a better orienteer the mapping certainly does um it's about the best way of learning how to handle different terrains because when you're mapping you're looking at a ground shape and trying to imagine it, the contour is showing it in, three, in, in two dimensions. And so when you've got the map, you can see the shapes far better. You're just working backwards from what you've been learning. So I'd, I'd recommend mapping for anyone um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a learning technique. It is a long, a lot, it is a slow process though mapping. You know, it's something that takes six hours in a day rather than an hour of orienteering, but um, worth worth trying if you've got some spare time. Um, coaching, yeah, I think I I, I think coaching does help. Um, you, you see so many other people in so many different situations that you know, you refer back to your own your your own self in your own races, and you can kind of build up um, build up your own skills and 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 so on. Another thing is watching other people in a team, particularly the, you know, the, the real top people in a team, watching how they respond and how they react and so on, learning from them. Um, so if, if you're a novice, say, at the, at the junior interregionals, 
look around. What what are the, what are the, the, the you know the, the the top guys and girls who are, who are winning our courses? How are they responding to it? You know, that bit of the map wasn't very clear. How did they handle it? What about that leg there that was really tricky and so on? You know, sort of so look, trying to learn from people around you. Yeah, I think it's learning from as, as many people as possible. And, and I certainly know that when I've done like a coaching a couple of days or a week, it just kind of gives me a bit of a kick up the backside to like get my own orienteering in order. I'm like, I've been telling all these juniors how to orienteer for a week. Like I need to listen yeah. to my own advice. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> School of Absolutely. Yeah. I need to get myself back in order because, yeah, um, if I or if I oriented how I coach, I think I'd be much better at orienteering than I actually yeah, am. Yeah, yeah. And and I think we are now seeing more like maybe younger people do the coaching with some of the the, the squads or some of the the tours that go on. And um, but for still a lot of the a lot of our officials, our mappers, our controllers, our planners, our our coaches are kind of older people they're middle-aged or they're older people so yeah. what would you say to someone who is maybe interested in doing one of those things who's maybe a younger person do it um i'd hope that wherever you are you'll get support from your club from your region um uh, you know hopefully if, if you're offered to do some coaching for your club the club will pay for your coaching qualification um and uh it's fun and talking about the fun, the one, th probably the biggest thing I've learned in the last three years from, from taking on the coaching of Scott, Scottish Junior Squad is that it's got to be fun. Mm. Even for the, for the juniors there who are running in jaywalk, they won't come to training weekends if it's not fun. Even at that level, they still want an enjoyment factor. They're not prepared to just flog it for no reward. Um, so, yeah, give them lots of time on their own. They'll fill it up. <laughs> but, uh, as older people, we might think oh, they're just playing on bloody stupid games, but they're, they're having a good time together and that will encourage them to come back again. Yeah, it will encourage them to try hard, to stick at the sport and just to, you know, yeah, keep, keep enjoying it because that's ultimately yeah. why we do orienteering. And even if they don't make it, as an, as an athlete in the senior level, hopefully you've been, they've been inspired enough that they want to give something back, whether it's as a planner, an organizer, a coach, um, control hanger, any of those things, every, every one of those things is, is important. And uh, if we could hold on to more of our juniors, not necessarily as athletes, but just as active orienteers, it'd be great. Yes, hear, hear, wise words. <laughs> I, I really think so. And I think the fun and the social aspect is such, a, a, such an important part of that. So thanks very much to John Musgrave for having a chat to us. Uh, really great to hear kind of a new approach, a different approach to coaching and all the parts of being why it's great to be an official uh, here. So uh, that's pretty much it for today's episode of the Run In uh, podcast. We will be back again next week with another episode of the Sprints. Uh, first of all, a quick word from our sponsors, um, Envy and Straight Compasses. I've been using the Forest 2 spot a lot recently um, in some of the races. I just feel like it's given me 
a good amount of grip, especially going down hills. I have a lot of fear about going down hills. Know that I'm going to stay upright in these. Uh, so they're the ones without the metal dobs and they're a lot of kind of good to use on some of the military areas I'm training on that have quite a few kind of roads going through them. I think they're, they do the job very well. So if you uh, want to get any uh, shoes from Envy, you can contact Mary Fleming on envystraight.uksales at gmail.com. That's envystraight.uksales at gmail.com. And yeah, we will be back in another couple of weeks, maybe wrapping up a bit, a little bit from Yukala and bringing you more of the orienteering news. We'll see you then. Thank you.